good morning. It's a, it is a, it's a privilege to be here and just have an opportunity to share the message this morning. You know, James asked me to speak. Um, he just said to me, he said, listen, pick a Sunday. What Sunday would you like to speak? And I said, well, I mean, if it doesn't matter, how about Easter Sunday? James said, uh, Al, I don't think that's going to be a good match for you. Um, I've got a very special Sunday in mind for you. Um, it bookends one of our national holidays where maybe a quarter to a half of our people will be on vacation. And then there's another um, thing about a fifth of our congregation will be in Honduras on a mission trip. So I said, perfect. I've always thought that, you know, worship leading and speaking is really done to an audience of one, right? I just didn't realize how close we might be to that number this morning. I'm kidding. Actually, I'm do doing great. You, su you surprised me this morning. There's a great number of folks here, so that's wonderful. Um, let me ask you, do you ever weary? Do you ever get tired of the evil around us? That's encroaching on us? The moral corruption? The lies? the evil that's at your door? Do you get tired of um, maybe Christian friends or even churches you know that have compromised their basic biblical values? They don't want to have those values. Do you ever grieve for what your children might be facing? I'll tell you, oftentimes I feel powerless to fight evil. I mean, I, I think about doing something. I want to do something. I want to fight evil. I want to say something. I want to stand up and do something. But oftentimes the response is that, that I fear from other people silences me. Often I am um, passive when it comes to fighting evil, indifferent. Sometimes I'm just in denial. I need more courage. Um, you know, maybe if I had that incredible uh, uniform that Iron Man wears, or that um, if I possessed that great, incredible strength of the Hulk, maybe I would have more courage to fight evil. This morning we're looking at Nehemiah 13. We're wrapping up, wrapping up the book of Nehemiah. And if there's one thing that is unmistakably clear about Nehemiah, it's that he was a fighter. He fought evil from without and evil from within. In chapter 4, verse 14, when in the middle of rebuilding the wall, it says this about the enemies that they were facing. This is what it says. It says, remember me. Remember the Lord. Do not be afraid of them. And I hope you can hear this and maybe even think about this this morning. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He didn't have a cape, but Nehemiah was a fighter. He was a person just like you and me. You know, David was just a normal a kid when he stood up by faith and fought Goliath. And the cool thing about superheroes, and maybe the thing you know about them, or Batman or Iron Man or others, is they have an alter ego. You're familiar with this, right? And once they put on their cape or their cool uniform, 
then they have all kinds of power to fight evil. But you know what? If they don't put on that cape, they remain weak and powerless. And the amazing truth, and it's not fiction, is this, is that you and I have the power and access to the power and methods to fight the evil that's around us today. And today, as we look at Nehemiah, we're going to look at five ways to prepare yourself to fight evil and contend for the hearts of those you love. First, we need some context for Nehemiah 13. In about 444 B.C., Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He was appointed as governor, and he leads the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah's work was far greater than that, as we've seen in the past weeks. It's much more about strengthening the spiritual culture of the Israelites and the people of Jerusalem. Chapter 5, verse 14 shows this, that he was appointed governor for 12 years. Just as a backdrop to chapter 13, um, it's good to know that, uh, as we covered a couple weeks ago, James mentioned in chapter 10, the people signed a covenant. It was like a recommitment of their faith regarding issues that they addressed regarding the Sabbath, marrying outside the faith, um, tithes, putting the service of God's house in order. All hearts at that time were aligned with God's purposes. Then in chapter 12, verse 43, you can see that there was a, there was a celebration that took place, a great celebration, and they were celebrating all that God had done. And after 12 years, Nehemiah went back to Susa, the capital of Persia, where he came from, and he was taking a break. So he went back to the king, to his former job, I guess. And the scripture is not quite clear. It's a little unclear to know exactly how long he stayed there. But then chapter 13 is he came back now to Jerusalem to find that all of the spiritual culture, strength, celebration, and all the hearts that were aligned, that all of that spiritual culture now has eroded. And now he comes back ready to fight against that erosion. Chapter 13, verse 6 and 7 says this, while, he was, um, while this was taking place, now he's referring to all the corruption he's seeing. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, or back to Jerusalem. That's what, that's what chapter 13 is all about. He's come back now, and he's seen the evil that's in front of him. Now, chapter 13 is about fighting evil. Now, first of all, it's about addressing evil. How do I know? Well, it says it in the text. Verse 7 says, when Nehemiah learned of the evil. Verse 17 says, when confronting the violations of the Sabbath, Nehemiah asks the leaders, what is this evil thing that you are doing? And verse 27 says, Nehemiah refers to marrying outside the faith as committing a great evil. The passage is also about confronting and fighting. How do I know that? Well, again, it's just right in the text. In verse 8, it says he literally throws out all of Tobiah's furniture out of the temple chambers. We're going to talk about that a little later. In verse 11, he reprimands the officials for forsaking the house of God. 
In verse 15, he admonishes. In verse 17, he reprimands both the Jewish people and their, and their uh, neighbors for profaning and corrupting the Sabbath. Now listen to this. In verse 25, this is the scripture. This is what it says. He contended with them. He cursed them and struck them. He hit them and pulled out their hair. Have you ever been that frustrated? Listen, you know you've had a bad day if someone like Billy Graham likes to beat you up. I mean, Nehemiah is anything but passive. Anything but indifferent. He is a man on fire. Now we're going to take a look at those five ways to fighting evil and contending for the hearts of those we love. First one is, it begins in the heart. I think oftentimes reading the text, sometimes you might get the idea that Nehemiah addressing this evil comes out of a self-righteousness that he has. He's going to beat down other people because he gets it and they don't. That is not at all Nehemiah's heart. And I hope you'll catch a glimpse of Nehemiah's heart as we look at chapter, just take a, a look back at chapter 1. Because where does Nehemiah get his amazing concern for the people of God? Where does Nehemiah get that courage to stand up and address and fight evil? And the secret really is revealed in chapter 1. I want you to just catch a glimpse of the heart of Nehemiah. Chapter 1, verse 3, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. When Nehemiah heard of the condition that the people of God were in distress and in shame, it, it broke his heart. It destroyed him. He sat, just catch this, he sat and wept for days. When is the last time that I, I wept for a day about the things of God? My pastor, when I was when we lived up in Lenore, North Carolina, did a great message on evangelism and um it broke my heart. And I had to admit, though, though in my younger years and all this, I had a great passion for sharing the gospel with other people, that my heart had become indifferent to the lost. And when he preached that message, and he always did altar calls, I can tell you, I came up from the back row all the way to the front. Oh, God, changed my heart. I was in tears. Man, does your heart grieve? for the things that grieve God's heart. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, he continued fasting and praying. Nehemiah is often noted for his short prayer in chapter 2, but um, he was a man of prayer and deep spirituality, as almost every chapter of Nehemiah reveals. 
He fasted and prayed for four months before he approached the king with his request and his short prayer. In verse 6, we continue. Listen to this. Let your, this is his prayer. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayers of your servants that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And listen to this. Which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Not only was Nehemiah transparent, not only was he broken, not only was he a man of prayer and fasting, but he was repentant, confessing his sins. Even I, in my father's house, we have acted very corruptly. Now, I don't know if you catch this, and if you're really familiar with the scriptures, then you might get what I'm going to say here, but like Daniel and Ezra notice that Nehemiah understood that the issues around the world, that around him in the world, that he was somehow complicit in allowing them to continue and grow. That's the heart I think I want to have, is to understand how I've contributed to the world around me. It begins in the heart. Bob Pierce, the founder of both, you've probably heard this quote before, but it sure fits. He was the founder of both World Vision and Samaritans. First said this, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Nehemiah's heart was broken by things that break God's heart. He loved God so much. He was passionate about God. And that's why his love for God, his intimacy with God, out of that grew an incredible love for God's people. And that's why he hated evil so much. Because he knew what it would do to the hearts of God's people. Gaining a heart like that doesn't happen overnight. It requires deep, honest, ongoing expression to God. Psalm 51, God, God desires truth in the innermost being. You see it in David, the man after God's heart in Psalm 34. I sought the Lord. Listen to this. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. I grew up in South Omaha. You're not supposed to fear anything. Over the years, God has taught me how crucial it is to take every fear, every discouragement, every joy, to just let him know exactly how I feel about everything around me, everything that's going on in my marriage. That's what he desires. You know, it says that the Lord desires truth in Psalm 51. It says the Lord desires truth in the innermost being. He can handle your honesty. I believe that's exactly the way Nehemiah was. David's heart revealed after Bathsheba in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. 51.17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. That was Nehemiah's heart. And in to that type of heart, God breathes his passion. And into Nehemiah's heart, God breathed a fire. The second thing 
Fighting against evil, contending for the hearts of those you love, means knowing and accurately handling the word of God. In chapter 13, verse 1, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Abonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. You know, the entire book of Nehemiah was written by Nehemiah. And throughout that book, what is unmistakably clear is he possessed a profound knowledge of the scriptures. In chapter 5, he shows an intimate knowledge when he was fighting for the poor. In chapter 5, he had an intimate knowledge of Exodus 22, which shows God's people were not to lend money with interest to their brothers. They were selling people. They, would, they had been exiled from slavery, but then they were selling people into slavery. And Nehemiah was angry about that. He knew uh, in detail in chapter 10, the details of the covenant is revealed in Exodus and Deuteronomy. He knew the inner workings of the temple service, the importance of tithing, marrying within the faith. Chapter 13, 26 shows Nehemiah knew of Solomon's history of marrying foreign wives and how it impacted the nation that's referred to in 1 Kings. His wife turned his heart away. I could go on and on and on about the special Hebrew words he used that shows that he had an intimate knowledge of, of Exodus 34, 6 because those words are just not used only in a few, a few places throughout the scripture. I love that Christ's point, one of our four E's, is to encounter not just the Word of God, encounter the transforming power of the Word of God. There is power in the Word of God. The Word of God not only shows us what evil is, it reveals God's heart to define evil and why it's evil for us to partake. The beginning of wisdom, listen, listen to this, you've probably heard these verses, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord is to hate what is evil. The greater we love God, the more we will love his people, the more we will hate evil. For the Christian, evil is defined by God's word, God's heart, not by our feelings, not by our culture, and not by your friends, and not by our loved ones. What evil is is defined by God. why we have to be familiar in today's world with the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and inner chaos in the Greek, powerful. Ephesians 6, in, in taking on the armor of God, Paul calls the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. Jesus used the Word of God in Luke 4 to do hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil. The Word of God is your lightsaber. Trying to live the Christian life without the Word of God is like trying to go out in Minnesota on a hot summer evening with no mosquito repellent. Now, if you don't know anything about Minnesota, then that's not going to make a lot of sense to you. But they're, they're uh, you know, I said they're birds, right? I meant they're mosquitoes, about the same. You know, I get, uh, I get the enjoyment of golf and video games. I get, I get the love that people have for travel or binging on shows. 
And I get, I get just how important it is to find out where Kevin Durant is going to summer league. You know, I, I do find some rest in that. I find some great joy in that. But I can tell you, nothing is going to prepare me to fight evil or to have your kids fight evil or to fight for the hearts of those you love than the power of the word of God and your commitment to read and study the word of God. Beg God for a heart to love and study his word. Number three, fighting evil and fighting for the hearts of those you love means speaking up, addressing the evil that God puts in front of you, admonishing others. Now we see in this passage, verse 7, Nehemiah confronts Eliashib, the high priest. In verse 17, he confronts the nobles. In verse 25, he confronts the people about marrying outside the faith. When I was 22 years old, Wendy and I were married. We either had one or two kids at the time. Um, and I was working for this ministry. Kids working with, this ministry working with kids from the juvenile court. And the national director of my ministry was coming into town. And during the course of that visit, he admonished me on a couple things. And I got very defensive. And it turned nasty. You ever been one of those? I called him in the midst of our conversation, the national ministry director, a spiritual dwarf. Which caused him to swear at me. Which only confirmed my suspicions. He then called me a pompous donkey. Only he didn't use the word donkey. And so I went home. I was traumatized. I was fearful. I was afraid I was going to lose my job. And I got home that night, talked to Wendy, and, uh, and I went in on my knees. I was so freaked out. I got onto my knees, and I was like, Lord, this is almost my exact prayer. Lord, you know that guy was wrong. You know he's totally messed up. But Lord, just in case, if there's anything in me that you would want to address, speak it to me. I mean, it was immediate. I, I didn't have to wait. It was almost like an audible voice from God. Al, you know that thing he said about the pompous donkey? That's you. Uh, that was a huge transformational moment for my soul, which my wife is ever thankful for. Some of my greatest growth moments in life have come through the admonition of others. Galatians 6.1 says, If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Matthew 18 says, If your brother sins or sister, um, go and tell them his fault between you and him alone. When I see evil in front of me, I have several options. I can pretend I don't see it. I'm in denial. I can see it in my kid, see it in my friend, see it in my small group, 
I can pretend I didn't see it. I can judge the person. I can gossip or I can take on the responsibility God has given to every believer. Now, it seems a great irony to me. Being a flawed, sinful, weak person. That God wants me to address the sin that I see in others' lives. That doesn't seem right. One day I was on a consulting assignment in another state. And I was in a restaurant with a friend of mine having lunch. And only as God could do, I saw another man I knew, a friend of mine, an executive director of a Christian ministry, back in a dark corner of the restaurant, behaving inappropriately with a woman who was not his wife. I felt sick. I immediately left the restaurant and later called the man and said, we need to meet right away. And as we sat down, I said to him, listen, I'm a sinner just like you, and that could have been me in that booth. But God requires me to tell you that what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop. He resigned his post immediately. He and his wife separated. And that man called me almost a year from that moment in time. And this is what he said to me. For over 30 years, I've been living a lie. And the day you confronted me is the day I believe I started a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if I wouldn't have spoke up? That man has given me permission to share that story. At Christ Point, one of our four E statements is experience an authentic community. It means we love each other, grieve with each other, celebrate with each other, but equally and maybe even more important to our growth is, is our ability to speak the truth in love. Do you love God's people enough to speak the truth to them? Acts 20, 31, listen to this verse. Paul says this in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. Acts 20, 31, therefore be on the alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. How long did he do that? For three years. When did he do it? Night and day. How did he do it? With tears. Who was involved? Every one of them. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him admonishing every person, teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person mature in Christ. The word in the Greek for admonishment is the word nothetu. It implies people will be resistant to it. Maybe that's why I hate admonishment so much. Is when someone admonishes me, it ouches. It hurts me. It's meant to. If you really hope to nurture your friends, mentor others, disciple others, have strong small groups, admonishment will play an important role. I know many of you know that. Fight the evil with admonishment. Fight the evil that God puts in front of you. Nehemiah addressed these issues because they were all under his purview. 
I wasn't looking to address that issue with my friend in the restaurant. God put it in front of me. Deal with the issues God puts in front of you. That's your responsibility. And likewise, let go of the battles that are not your concern. Can I say, let go of the battles that are not your concern. What's happening in North Korea or Iran may not be on your list of responsibilities today. Being updated on every crime in Charlotte and solving it personally may be something that you can let go. You know this prayer, you've heard this a thousand times perhaps, right? Lord, teach me to change the things I can, let go of the things I cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference. And the reduction in anxiety, the protection over my physical heart because of those, that prayer right there that I meditate on often. Number four, sometimes fighting evil, contending for the hearts of those I love, means slamming the door on evil people. Now look, this is just what the text says. That's why we're talking about these things this morning. Chapter 13, verse 6 and 7, And after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts in the house of God. And I was very angry. I threw all the household furniture out of the chamber. Nehemiah is deeply upset that Eliashib, get this, the high priest, not only invited Tobiah back into the midst of God's people, but also he took one of the rooms adjacent to the temple, the room that had previously been kept for offerings. Are you getting the picture? And he made it into a large apartment for Tobiah. Why was Nehemiah so upset? Tobiah was a notorious enemy of Nehemiah and of the Israelites. He's the same person that mocked Nehemiah and the people and said, you know, if a, if a fox gets on that wall, it will fall down. Tobiah and Sanballat did everything they could to stop the building of the wall. They were the very reason the Israelites had to carry weapons as they built. He spread false rumors about Nehemiah and the workers. And what caused the high priest Eliashib to make such a horrible decision? He was a relative of Tobiah by marriage. In his book, Necessary Endings, Henry Cloud describes evil people. You know, I hope, I hope you can catch this. For some people, it's a big step to realize there are people in the world who are trying to hurt you intentionally. There are people that like to bring others down. They're intentionally divisive. They're out to ruin you, your business. And can I add church? They enjoy it when others when others fall, because, because their heart reflects the evil one's heart. They may envy you. They may hate your success. They try and create the downfall of others. The only way out, Henry Cloud says, is to create a necessary ending and have nothing to do with them again. You must go into protection mode, not helping them mode. You know, let the person that has your ears hear what I'm saying. If a person puts you, your marriage, or family in danger or spiritual danger, they're doing evil. This may trouble you. You may say, but Al, isn't the Christian life about forgiveness, reconciliation, grace? Absolutely. How can you say we should end certain relationships? Look, where would I be without forgiveness? 
meeting a second, third, fourth, and fifth chance. I'm not talking about one sin here. I'm talking about persistent practice of sin in an unrepentant heart. And there are plenty of examples in Scripture where God and godly leaders deal harshly with evil people. 1 Samuel 16.1, God admonished the great prophet Samuel. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king of Israel? There's a time to move on. Don't let your compassion extend beyond God's compassion. There's a time to let go of a person or let that person, let that person suffer the consequences of their long-established behavior. 1 Kings 15.11 says, King Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 13 it says this, He also removed Maka, his mother, from being queen mother because she made an abominable, in the Hebrew, disgusting image for Asherah, a false god. Sometimes we have to make extremely difficult choices regarding people. Sometimes people behave in ways that don't allow the possibility of an ongoing relationship. And maybe you've had to make and grieve decisions you've had to make like that. Remember this, saying yes to someone like this or reopening the door of someone that's violated you, your family, is saying no to your spouse, it's saying no to your friends, it's saying no to your family, no to your church, it's inviting evil back in. Abusers, narcissists, evil people like this are always, get this, they're always looking for a way back in. They're like roaches. I know roaches. I'm from South Omaha. You know, our roaches owned a chain of hotels. They, they're always trying to get back in. You can read many passages like this in the scripture. The bottom line is, with evil people, stay away. Create the firmest protection for you and your family. And that's what he should have done with Tobiah. You know, it's hard to let people go like that, but you let go of them by faith. Trust God with the outcome. You know, for a number of reasons, for a number of reasons, Abraham let, had to let go of Ishmael, his son, that he loved so much. Actually, let Hagar and Ishmael out by the desert. Here's some water, here's some food. You, you, when, you let, when you have to let someone go like this, and maybe you've had to do something just like that in your life, you have to let them go by faith with an understanding that God is big enough to take care of those people and their problems. Number five, contending for the hearts of those you love means establishing priorities and practices that will nurture the heart and nurture faith. A couple weeks ago, James did a great job of talking about addressing the issues in chapter 10 of the Sabbath, marrying inside the faith, the importance of giving, um, serving, and um, keeping God's service and, and uh, body in order. And so I'll just briefly address this. In this chapter, what happens is those were all violated again. And so Nehemiah, we see him fighting for all of these practices. So I just want you to take a look at, in our last point here, just a few 
of understanding the heart behind these things. It's not God just requiring these arbitrary duties. Keep the Sabbath. Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Did you ever see someone you love work way too hard? They're just working way too hard. My wife works way too hard. And she's done this for decades. She's a hard worker. And I'm going, baby, stop. Take a break. Don't work so hard. Sleep as long as you want. Go out, do some other things. Enjoy that. You know why I do that? Because I love her. And it gives her health to take a break. That heart is God's heart for us. Take a break. Take a break. Rest. Because rest is health-giving. And she's the same for me. She's like, Al, go out and play golf. Now, part of that, I think, is maybe a defense mechanism for when I begin to drive her nuts. Because we work together. Because, look, when I don't get rest, I don't know about you, but when I don't get rest, when I'm under too much stress, I become angry, frustrated, I complain, I'm irritating to be around. And here's the thing. I can't tell how I'm coming across. I need rest. That's God's heart for you. Build in that practice. Make it a practice for you and your children. And by the way, parents, just a thing, right? Your children can't analyze whether they need breaks or not. You have to step in. I love some of our parents and that they've, you know, the parameters they've put on musicians and how long they can I love it because I know you love your kids. Also, try to see the reflection of God's heart and his passion as he confronts the issue of marrying outside the faith. Nehemiah is saying, don't you see what it did to Solomon? 1 Kings 11.3 said it turned Solomon's heart away from God. He could see the long-term consequence. Nehemiah is after their heart, like God is after your heart, like your parents are, your heart saying, marrying within the faith because that's where the least pain in life is. Listen, marriage is hard enough. Anybody in here been married for over 15 years? Raise your hand. Okay, you know, you've been in a few. You've been in a, a few throwdowns, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Marriage is hard enough, even with a godly spouse. Trying to imagine it working when you share two different worldviews, that's impossible. God is trying to protect that with saying marrying. Within a fight for your marriage. Teach your children the great advantage of marrying inside the faith. And then Nehemiah addresses the practice of neglected service. Restore the order of giving in the priests and Levites serving. And just simply, Ephesians 2.10 says, We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared before him that you should walk in them. God's best life for you, God's best life for me, is that we discover who he has made us to be, the assignments he has for us, and that we walk in them. Establishing great practices in your lives and the life of those you love will prepare you for fighting evil. Resting gives you health to fight evil. You know, it's the same way that 
these practices that you establish the same way that, the, that many hours of practice prepares a musician or an athlete. Putting in good practices that nurture the heart will be powerful to strengthen you to fight evil. Listen, if you spend time doing the do's, you don't have time to do the don'ts. What could be a more beautiful picture and practice than going on a mission trip by faith, and there's some that aren't pictured here, but many of these are Christ Point leaders with many of their kids in Honduras right now. I hope you're praying for them. I hope you have prayed for them because I'm not sure even they know how dangerous Honduras is right now. Pray for them. An amazing thing to serve the poor, share the gospel with children that they're doing. What a beautiful way to nurture faith in your heart to go with your children and the family of God overseas to invest in that kind of investment. Man. Maybe next year that will be you. Look, we've covered five ways to prepare yourself to fight evil and contend for the hearts of those you love. It begins in the heart. Knowing and accurately handling God's word. It's your lightsaber. Addressing the evil that God puts in front of you by being willing to step up by God's power and admonish other people. It's slamming the door on evil people who have long established, unrepentant, dark behavior. And it's establishing priorities and practices that will nurture the heart of faith. You know, as you see those five items up there, notice, notice this. The first two don't take place on the battlefield. They take place away from the battle. The activity away from the battle is often more important to the battle. Dads, moms. The activity away from the battle is often more important to the battle than the battle itself. They take place in the Holy of Holies, you and me, in the presence of God. It's where I put on my cape and garner the courage to fight evil. Let's pray. Father, you so patient with me. Father, and as I read your word and I study Nehemiah, I see the tremendous love that was formed in Nehemiah's heart because of his intimacy and relationship with you that pours out through all that he says and does. And I pray, Father, that would be my heart, that you'd give me courage and strength to stand up when you call me to stand up, to fight evil when I need to fight evil. Give Christ point, Father, the courage to continue to do that and be a light to this community. May we fall in love, Father, with your word and your life for us. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name.